Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorca. In this episode, I speak with Vikash Mansinka, research scientist at MIT, where he leads the probabilistic computing project. And he's also co-founder of a new startup called Empirical Systems. I long wanted to introduce listeners to recent developments in probabilistic programming. So uh, this episode is an overview of all the recent developments in this field. As you know, probability is a mathematical language to represent, model, and manipulate uncertainty. And probabilistic programming provides frameworks for representing probabilistic models as computer programs. This family of tools and techniques distinguishes between models and the inference procedures, and in the process encourages the kind of model-based thinking that may inform the design of future AI systems. In particular, they may supplement current data and compute-intensive systems that rely mainly on large-scale pattern recognition. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Vikash Mansinka, welcome to The Data Show. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. So, probabilistic programming, it's an area that I've long wanted to explore in this podcast and in just in general uh, at Strata and at our new AI conference. But before we dive in, let's talk a little bit about your background. So you have a PhD at MIT. So was that generally in uh, the area of probabilistic uh, programming, probabilistic computing? Yeah, that's right. Although at the time that I did my PhD, um, neither of those were established uh, academic fields. Um, so my PhD thesis uh, was titled Natively Probabilistic Computation, and it was actually supervised by the Brain and Cog Department. And actually, some of the early work on probabilistic programming, both that I did and that other people in the field did, really grew out of an attempt to better understand the human mind and brain in computational terms. So it's a uh, is it like neuro it was like neuro inspired. I wouldn't say neural inspired so much as psychologically inspired. I see. So these days we're hearing a lot about approaches to AI that are informed by our best thinking about what the quote unquote hardware of the brain might be. You know, that's part of the legacy of neural networks. One way you could think about it is that probabilistic programming was maybe instead inspired by very deep thinking on that long predates the field on what the software of the mind might be. I see. So let's actually, let's jump in. So probabilistic programming, in your mind, how would you explain it to a practicing data scientist? Okay, great. Well, here I'm going to distinguish between... Um, probabilistic programming languages that are really domain-specific for data science and machine learning, and probabilistic programming uh, more generally, which actually goes considerably beyond that. So for people who are doing data science, there are a few different probabilistic programming languages. Uh, STAN, developed by the Bayesian statistics community, for example, and BayesDB from my lab, and a couple of others, which are really aimed at simplifying the practice of modeling and inference. So many people who do data science use probabilistic techniques to do data analysis, and many of those techniques are based on models. But as many people who've worked with models, complex models, know, there are a lot of technical challenges that show up um, that are normally only solved on a whiteboard with math, and those domain-specific probabilistic languages like Stan and BayesDB aim to simplify uh, the development of systems that use modeling and inference. 
So there's a there's a, a family of techniques that came out of uh, uh, the Bayesian school that a lot of data scientists uh, use and are familiar with topic models. So it, to me, they are kind of like uh, 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 great examples of these graphical models. Mm -hmm. uh, so how would you explain topic models in the context of uh, probabilistic programming? Sure, there are great examples. So um, some of the oldest forms of topic models, which are for people who, um, who may be newer to the area, are a probabilistic model-based approach for turning a corpus of unstructured text documents into a representation of a kind of statistical description of the topics of discourse. So, you know, one of the first examples of topic models that I remember learning about in school was, uh, let's say you're trying to solve the problem of taking the word bank that occurs in a document and knowing whether that word is referring to the side of a river or a financial institution, right? Well, which of those it is kind of depends on whether the document is about nature and hiking or finance. Um, so topic models were uh, one probabilistic proposal for solving that problem, for taking a corpus of documents and simultaneously discovering what are the topics being talked about. And then for each instance, each word instance in the corpus, um, in, every, in each document, what topic did it probably come from? And uh, Mike Jordan, Dave Bly, uh, and Andrew Ng, who did some of the earliest work on topic models, which themselves build on a much older tradition, actually, you know, they proposed the idea that you could form, you could solve this problem by assuming some probability distribution over possible topics, and you know, really applying old ideas from from Bayesian statistics to this more modern information retrieval, natural language processing problem. Now, the most basic topic models have been in use for a long time, and you know, all the major uh, consumer internet sites use versions of topic models as a core part of their machine learning and natural language processing infrastructure. So those have been like really scaled up. But there are many, many variations of topic models that make less cartoonish assumptions about documents. So that include models that are not that don't just so basic topic models assume that each document is just about a set of topics. And each topic is just kind of randomly about a set of words. So to generate a document, you generate a sequence of words by first choosing a topic at random from you know the types of topics the document is about, say, hiking or finance, and then you pick a random word from each of those topics. You know, So you might generate a document that has words like tree and river and stream and boots and water, and another that has you know, JP Morgan and investment and account and bank. Um, so th those assumptions are pretty simple. We know there's a lot more structure to most documents. Different authors like to talk about different topics. Uh, the structure of words involves parts of speech, and you know, you know, documents aren't just collections or bags of words. Um, so there's a whole literature and topic models that built on the basic ideas, but included some of those other effects. And pretty soon, once you get past the simplest forms of topic models, the uh, complexity involved in designing the models, deriving the inference algorithms, implementing the inference algorithms, and then debugging and testing them can be prohibitive. So one of the probabilistic programming systems, so a couple of the probabilistic programming systems that have been developed um, are aimed at simplifying the development of systems that use those kinds of maybe fancier topic models.
So basically, I guess, uh, Vikash, what many of these systems allow you to do is basically uh, have someone else worry about the actual inference, right? So. Well, so it's true that some probabilistic programming languages are what you might think of as declarative languages for modeling, where what you write down as the user is just a set of modeling assumptions. So like in STAN, with the STAN probabilistic programming language, which has been heavily used by ecologists, yeah, like you might write down assumptions about how the uh, concentration level or the population of various species, ecological species, varies across different geographic regions. And you might write down modeling assumptions that say there's some probability distributions that describe that, that have some parameters. And you might write down the query that you want to know, okay, given the data, actually, what are those parameter values? You know, what are the most probable parameter values and what are the unlikely ones? So there are declarative modeling languages like STAN that let you ask and answer questions like that. But the field of probabilistic programming um, includes lots of probabilistic languages, which actually don't fit that mold. Um, so one way to think about that in the probabilistic programming language picture, uh, which was one of the probabilistic programming languages developed by my lab, um, uh, you can solve computer vision problems. Like, let's take the problem of going from an image of a face to an answer to the what if question of what would that face, same face look like from a different, if you rotated it and lit it from the side. So say so you have an image of a face. And you want the computer to tell you, you know, what if you rotated the face and lit it from the side? Oh, I've, I've, seen, uh, I've seen demos of this. These are, it's pretty cool. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So, um, uh, so for those kinds of questions, um, what, you know, those are hard 3D computer vision problems. We have to go from a single image to a 3D model and a good enough model that it's, that it's still useful when you rotate it. So, in fact, that's a much harder problem than typical face recognition systems just based on deep learning have to solve, right? This has to produce as output an entire image of a face. It has to imagine what that image is going to look like, not just classify it or go, oh, yeah, I've seen this before, right? So, picture lets you solve problems like that um, using uh, just a handful, in this case, about 50 lines of picture code. You ask, what does that code do? Part of that code is a model based on computer graphics. So you can use off-the-shelf rendering components from computer graphics that draw pictures of faces. And again, we can talk more about this a little bit later, but uh, you know, picture lets you turn that generative knowledge, the knowledge of how to generate faces, into knowledge about how to recognize or build 3D models of faces. But picture programs also include hints about how to do inference. So when you write a picture program, you say, Here's a model of what might be out there in the world by writing down a graphics program that's driven with random inputs. But you also write down inference hints, inference tactics that tell the picture engine at a very high level how to explore the space of possible faces to find one that matches. So it's not just as though you write down a model and then inference is automatic. In something like picture, the problems are hard enough and varied enough that the user does have to tell the machine something about how to solve the problem, just at a much higher level than people are used to from computer vision. Now, since it's a computer program, does uh, uh, do these languages allow constructs, like uh, I would imagine, like recursion, control flow, those kinds of things? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, uh, so let me give you an example that's sort of even farther along the expressiveness spectrum and then say a little bit about what probabilistic programming is in general sort of outside of just the data science context. So one of the applications we just submitted a paper on, um, a venture, 
which is one of the probabilistic programming languages in my lab. So Venture is a, prob- a language for probabilistic metaprogramming. What's, what do I mean by metaprogramming? Well, metaprograms you might think of as programs that create, transform, or analyze other programs. So most programs operate on simple kinds of data, like let's say text or images, but metaprograms operate on programs. So uh, actually, did you hear about the Automated Statistician Project? Oh, yeah, Zubin's. Yeah, from Zubin Garamani's group. So they built this cool system that takes time series data and produces natural language descriptions. So like you could take a time series of, uh, uh, you know, passengers, monthly passengers counts for airlines. And the system would take that data and spit out a description in English, like, well, there's a linearly increasing trend, but there is a periodic cycle that goes roughly 12 months. And there are various periods where there were spikes or other short-term deviations. So the machine can understand some of the structure behind the time series. So that's what the automated statistician does, produces those descriptions from time series data. How does it do it? Well, it does that by searching a very large space of little symbolic descriptions of time series that use techniques from nonparametric Bayesian statistics, uh, 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 such as Gaussian processes, um, to define the relationship between little symbolic expressions that say things like linear trend with a certain slope or some periodic signal and connect those to messy time series data with all kinds of noise and exceptions. So that system was very complex. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you talk to the authors, um, you know, they're all colleagues of mine. So Zubin's on my, uh, uh, for example, a team member of the team from my lab uh, working on DARPA's program on probabilistic programming. You know, they'll say that that system uh, was really difficult to build. But one of the applications we did in Venture was we showed how you can re-implement it in just 60 lines of Venture code. But this Venture code is a probabilistic metaprogram that works by exploring a very simple space of probabilistic programs. So the structure of the description of a time series, like let's say linear with a periodic overlay and some deviations, is represented as a little program. So when you say 60 lines of code, the whole, uh, the whole thing, the, the instruction to how to search uh, and how to uh, do the non-parametric uh, Bayesian pattern That's right. recognition, all of That's that. That's right, all wow. of it. Wow. The, the prior over the source code, the likelihood that has the non-parametric Bayes, uh, the noise model for comparing the outputs of the time series to the real data, and the search tactics. Those all fit in 60 lines of probabilistic code. But in this case, you know, unlike normal statistical models, maybe the typical statistical models, which are defined over vectors of parameters, here you have a probabilistic program a part of that program is a probabilistic program that generates random probabilistic programs. And you have another probabilistic program that's exploring a space of probabilistic programs, hence probabilistic metaprogramming. So what are, for those of us who don't follow this field closely, what are some of the success stories or applications that uh, you'd like to point out to outsiders? Oh, that's great. So I think one of the most important comes from the STAN team. So the Stan, Stan is a probabilistic programming language, sort of largely headquartered at Columbia, the development's headquartered at Andrew, Columbia. Andrew Gelman, right? Yeah, that's right. So Andrew Gelman, um, uh, a very senior, distinguished uh, computational Bayesian statistician, uh, is one of the leads on the team. Uh, so Stan is really kind of informed by decades of experience in the Bayesian statistics community, going back to an earlier system called Bugs. Oh, yeah, I, I remember Bugs. Using Gibbs sampling. <laughs> yeah, I remember right. Bugs, yeah. Um, Right. 
so uh so so I think Stan has I don't know the exact user counts. My understanding is it's you know in the, the the low tens of thousands, certainly high thousands, probably like you know somewhere between ten and twenty thousand users. And these are typically scientists, or many of them are scientists who come from fields that have already adopted hierarchical Bayesian models. Part of the methodology that people like Nate Silver popularized on the last election cycle. Um, so Stan's really designed for those types of models, and uh, it's a success. Um, because it's kind of well matched to the needs of this existing market, uh, where people have been taking classes in this stuff for years and years, but found it very difficult to put into practice. And Stan really does simplify it. That's one kind of success story. But I want to give uh, two others that will help to give you a sense of the. Um, I'll give you three others. So the first one is uh, n- none of those are from my own research. We can talk about that later. So another success story, one that I find very inspiring, actually, is uh, from Stuart Russell's group at UC Berkeley. Um, So Stuart Russell uh, co-authored a textbook with Peter Norvig, uh, uh, who is Google search quality director for many years and chief scientist. And uh, and, uh, O'Reilly AI Conference honorary program chair. Oh, very good. That's right. Uh, Peter and I got a chance to catch up in New York, actually. Um, He actually helped get the MIT Probabilistic Computing Project started. So Stuart Russell and Peter Norvig are co-authors of a textbook called Artificial Intelligence and Modern Approach. That's uh, one of the standard uh, undergraduate and graduate textbooks in the field. I think it's the most most popular textbook, right? Yeah, that's right. So Stuart's been working on probabilistic programming for years, and one of the languages he's worked on is called BLOG, which stands for Bayesian Logic. Now, what blog really lets you do is build probabilistic models to solve problems where you're trying to make inferences from sensor data. That's one of the typical applications. Um, But you don't know how many objects there are out there in the world that might be giving rise to the sensor data. So one of the examples that he's been working on for years, he's been in partnership with the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty Organization in Vienna, which monitors the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, which is a treaty that bans nuclear testing on the surface of the Earth. So this is a fundamental problem for our civilization, right? Making sure that people don't test nuclear weapons and helping to sort of uh, give us early warning if some nation is developing a nuclear capability. So there's an international monitoring network for this treaty that places sensors all over the Earth's surface, including seismic sensors to detect vibrations, radionuclide sensors, many other types of sensors. And they have this problem, which is they detect all this information from sensors around the globe, and they want to know, does any of it mean there's a nuclear test happening, or is there just maybe an earthquake? And, you know, where is the event? What's the probability that it's a nuclear test? So this is a problem where I think it really matters that we get it right, and we use all the knowledge we can bring to bear to to answer that question. So Stuart's been working for years with the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty Organization, where they've been testing a probabilistic program for solving this problem. And that probabilistic program was actually prototyped in Blog, one of the research probabilistic programming systems from Stuart's group. And it's delivered some pretty interesting accuracy improvements over the system that the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty in Vienna has been developing for decades, and that's in operational use. Um, that's another success story of probabilistic programming that I personally find pretty inspiring. By the way, in, in that example, actually, it's uh, it's a great example because uh, if you think about uh, probability as a uh, as a framework for modeling uncertainty, this particular application, you can never go to your superior and say, uh, "We definitely know that there's nuclear tests happening," right? So, 
So there's always some uncertainty in your in your analysis. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and in fact, one of the ways that Stuart's system improves over the baseline system, built using more traditional pattern recognition techniques, actually, um, is that it can preserve uncertainty about the interpretation for longer throughout the computation. So it can kind of somehow consider more of the ambiguity uh, than traditional approaches. I'll give you a third success story. Um, so there's a probabilistic programming framework called Rufit, developed by, for example, uh, Kyle Cranmer's group at NYU, um, which was used to help with data analysis from uh, the Large Hadron Collider, so the big physical experimental apparatus uh, built in Europe. By the um, way, uh, Vikash, with this example and Stuart, the Stuart-Russell example, which involves sensors, I'm starting to sense that these systems can scale. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, now, I should say that it's not the case. I should put it. I'll come back to that in one second. Um, so, in the case of of this LA of of Rufit, uh, what Rufit was used to do by the physics community was build a probabilistic model where hundreds of different model components were built um, by tens of different labs around the world. So, this probabilistic program had a distributed authorship. Right? It was written by a community of scientists, each writing different parts. And what the probabilistic programming system did is it allowed those labs to glue together little local fragments of probabilistic modeling assumptions to help them kind of collectively analyze and reconcile data from this one experiment. So it's actually a wholly new a kind of data analysis process that's enabled by having essentially an AI system written as a probabilistic program, helping to reconcile evidence and modeling assumptions from different labs. So that's a case where there's both the question of scalability in terms of data, but also scalability in terms of knowledge, right? How can you go beyond probabilistic models that make very simple assumptions like we've been doing in classical statistics for decades and get to probabilistic models that capture more of the complexity of the world and crucially what we know about it? So you're also uh, leading up a project at MIT called the MIT Probabilistic Computing Project. So tell us about what the mission of this project is. Sure, happy to. So um, so it's my privilege to be a PI for the MIT Probabilistic Computing Project, which is a small academic lab uh, supported by the Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences at MIT and the Computer Science and AI Laboratory. So what we're trying to do is discover some of the basic principles that are needed to build probabilistic computers. So both hardware and software that's designed from the ground up to make use of incomplete information in probabilistic terms and apply that research both to problems in data analytics and uh, to fundamental research questions in AI and cognitive science. So that's kind of the mission of the project. It seems like I've seen you give talks and you folks are starting to ship pieces of what's looking like a stack. Yeah, that's right. So there's actually... Um, two stacks that are being developed at the Probabilistic Computing Project. So one of them, the larger one, uh, starts at the bottom with uh, stochastic digital hardware. Um, that's a proposal uh, worked out with a colleague of mine, Eric Jonas, who's a co-founder with me of a prior startup. Oh, I, I know um, Eric. Uh, and is now at Berkeley. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's a postdoc with Ben Reck now. Right? That's right. So wait a minute. So, so wait a minute. You, you must also know Bo Cronin then. Yeah, of course. Bo also worked with me on the same company. Oh, I see. Right. And they were both friends of mine in grad school. So there's this probabilistic computing stack. And then within it, there's a probabilistic programming software stack. So my lab currently focuses mainly on probabilistic programming, but it's in the context of this broader effort um, to explore uh, the viability and value of 
natively probabilistic hardware as well. So what about probabilistic programming? Well, we've been focusing on three probabilistic programming languages um, that are all part of the common venture platform. So venture is the name for our general purpose probabilistic metaprogramming platform. I mean, it's got its own language called VentureScript. And then we've also built Picture, which is a domain-specific probabilistic programming language for computer vision. That was actually done in collaboration with Microsoft with some of the researchers from the team that built some of the key machine vision technology for Kinect, their video game. But uh, everything is open source, right? Yeah, that's right. And then we've also been working on BayesDB, which is a probabilistic programming platform for probabilistic data analysis. And BayesDB, Picture, and VentureScript all interoperate as part of the Venture platform. Cool. Uh, so you've mentioned a few times about AI. So I imagine that the, the type of work you do also feeds into the whole uh, emerging AI ecosystem. So first off, uh, to what extent is your work uh, about AI and to what extent it's, is it about uh, augmented intelligence? That's great. So I work on both. So one way to think about it, AI as, a, as an enterprise, as Stuart Russell's book points out, really goes back uh, millennia. It's, it's sort of a frame for understanding our efforts to understand our own psyches. Just AI associated with that label, you know, arose after, or really, really sort of was the ground from which our modern notion of computer science sprang. So in that sense, everything we do in the Problems to Computing Project is in service of AI. Now, more narrowly, there's been a lot of interest in AI, kind of as a cyclical thing, around machine learning and pattern recognition, which are really sort of, you know, being applied to replace top-performing people. You know, this is a sort of part of the narrative for DeepMind, for example, and, and their AlphaGo system, or Watson's success beating Ken Jennings in Jeopardy, uh, or Deep Blue beating Gary Kasparov, uh, then the human world champion at chess in the late 90s. So that's one interesting way that the field of AI has tried to measure itself, but it also runs into difficulties, partly because all those tasks are pretty narrow. You know, they're all about games with well-defined rules. But uh, my lab has been working, for example, with the Gates Foundation for a couple of years now, trying to help them uh, with empirically grounded policy advocacy around malnutrition. So they have questions. So the Gates Foundation funds primary data collection all around the world. Um, and has a network of in-house and consulting partners in epidemiology and ecology and uh, development economics. And they want to know answers to questions like, are the results of a malnutrition intervention in Bangladesh, let's say, injecting vitamin A, you know, funding the, the availability of vitamin A injections or other forms of administering vitamin A, are, are those relevant for Kenya's response to malnutrition? So, you know, very basic questions about what interventions will help reduce the frequency with which we have kids who are physically stunted as a result of insults to their growth, like the absence of food during early childhood. That's uh, actually uh, quite amazing that uh, the Gates Foundation went to uh, your lab as opposed to like a group of developmental economists. So it just, just shows how uh, sophisticated they must be, right? So, well, you know, it's interesting. I, I mean, I, I I had the privilege of working with, um, you know, our contact at the Gates Foundation actually in my first startup. So I think he knew before he went to the foundation. So he was familiar with oh, some I of these capabilities. And it's absolutely true that, I mean, he was a, uh, uh, he worked at one of our customers uh, in the pharma sector. But, you know, the foundation does draw on people who have maybe an unusually broad and deep technical background as compared to other philanthropies. But the point there, right, is that what they need 
is the ability to better integrate their human understanding of the causes, uh, the causal structure of malnutrition and growth with the available empirical data so that their leadership can make better informed decisions uh, and their core staff can do more empirically grounded policy advocacy. There are no rules to this game. So they're not interested in uh, the kind of AI that's been receiving the most attention at, for example, uh, the O'Reilly conferences, right? They need a, a, a different kind of intelligent software support, which can be a partner with them in making judgments under uncertainty and where they can understand the rationale that the AI system is, is, is sort of uh, pointing them towards. That kind of relationship where you have software automation being a kind of assistant to a human supervisor falls much more under the rubric you know, of augmented intelligence. You also hinted at a, uh, another aspect of it, which is some notion of explainability. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, uh, and that's an issue that DARPA is very interested in, actually. So uh, uh, they just recently announced a new program they're starting on explainable AI. Um, because this is a real social problem, right? As traditional black box machine learning methods get more prevalent. Now, now, now we're getting into like uh, black boxes with 300 million parameters. Yeah, that's right. And as they get integrated into basic social processes, you know, what, one wonders, how is the judicial branch of the United States going to scrutinize decisions made by AI systems? If uh, an AI... Uh, autopilot or targeting support system for a military drone uh, suggests a target who was innocent and helps to encourage the pilot, you know, to pull the trigger. Who do you court martial if that decision was wildly erroneous? Or as it turns out, software that's based on large scale statistical inference um, has been sold to uh, courts, actually, uh, lo local courts to help assess, at least the, the sales pitch, is that it helps to assess the risk of recidivism on the parts of uh, people who have been convicted. And I guess the aspiration is to help uh, inform sentencing decisions. Now, what are the rights of someone who's had a decision made by a judge, but that decision was influenced by a recommendation from a black box AI system, which as it turns out, the parameters aren't available. Right, right. Uh, they're certainly not available to, the, um, uh, to anybody's attorneys. So this is a real problem. And I think, you know, probabilistic programming offers some new possibilities, although it certainly doesn't solve the problem on its own. And also, it uh, so actually, uh, going back to an example you cited earlier, I think uh, around a project called Picture, where uh, it was uh, solving a problem in computer vision where given a uh, an image, you imagine what would this image look like if you looked at it from a different angle under different conditions and so on and so forth. So it seems like uh, in that example, my understanding is that you're still using convolutional neural net somehow, but that's just a module in the overall system, right? So probabilistic programming uh, moving forward can be a part of an AI system, even, even though the AI, the AI system might actually be drawing from many different uh, uh, techniques. Yeah, that's right. In fact, um, you know, the way I think about it is that deep learning is one very interesting probabilistic programming tool. What do I mean by that? From a technical standpoint, you can write the algorithms that learn deep neural nets as probabilistic programs. Right. And in fact, many of the networks themselves are probabilistic programs. They're just atypical. 
given our current very limited or early understanding of what probabilistic programs are interesting or useful to write. And they're very different from the types of probabilistic programs you might write entirely by hand. Um, I think one of the very interesting areas um, of research over the next five to 10 years in AI will be um, really exploring connections between more explicit forms of structuring knowledge, uh, like the ones that probabilistic programming really has focused on so far, with more implicit forms, um, like what we see in deep learning. So for example, uh, I actually recently worked, uh, just started a project with a student where we're using, we're viewing deep learning as a kind of optimizing compiler that lets you take interpretable source code in a probabilistic programming language and turn it into a kind of, you know, much more black box optimized, essentially circuit design for solving the same problem. So this connection is interesting because uh, we think it's interesting because um, on the one hand, it allows us to use deep learning basically to um, speed up inference in probabilistic programs. So inference in probabilistic programs can be slow. Deep networks are fast and feed forward to use once you've trained them. But in this application, we're also using probabilistic programming to solve a problem in deep learning, which is where does the training data come from? Or uh, for that matter, uh, maybe reduce the amount of labeled data you need, right? That's right. Because that's one of the things about deep learning is it takes so much data for it to do kind of that causal reasoning that maybe uh, we can do much quickly as humans, right? So Yeah, that's right. Um, so that's one way in which structured, generative, explicit models written as probabilistic programs and deep neural nets learned also using probabilistic programming can address each other's limitations. So you're not just a researcher. You're also co-founder of a new startup. I don't know how much you uh, can talk about it. It's called Empirical Systems, but uh, tell us as much as you can about uh, your new startup. Oh, sure. Thanks. Um, yeah, it's also my privilege to be involved uh, as a co-founder and chief scientist of Empirical, which is out of uh, the Probabilistic Computing Project. Um, so uh, Empirical really grew out of our experience with BayesDB, the probabilistic programming plat open source probabilistic programming platform for probabilistic data analysis I mentioned earlier. Um, BayesDB tries to make it possible for people who don't have statistics background solve problems of inference from data. So querying the implications of data using a SQL-like language. So instead of, say, selecting the height, weight, and blood pressure of a population of patients, you know, let's say where the age is over 40, you could infer those same values with confidence 0.6. And then you'd get back re with uh, results that are filled in even when the raw values are missing. So we released a version of BayesDB on the internet a few years ago um, as part of a milestone for a DARPA grant. And within a couple of days, we were sending emails to uh, some of the users uh, at organizations like the College Board, actually, saying, please don't use this software yet. It's just something we did for a master's thesis. Um, it's not sort of ready for prime time. Um, but I think it spoke to the widespread need for AI assistance in data analytics, that lots and lots of people now um, are at a point where they understand the need and value of probabilistic data analysis. And they're trying to hire data scientists to do it, and they're finding it very difficult and time-consuming and failure-prone. Um, so we got Empirical Systems started because we believe that probabilistic programming is one of the key technologies that's needed to build a new generation of AI assistance for data analytics. So Empirical's product is a data platform that includes Empirical Analyst which is a kind of virtual or AI data analytics assistant that can automate some of the most routine tasks 
that currently occupy a lot of data scientists' time and attention, such as exploratory modeling, data cleaning, and data quality control, and enable teams of data scientists to uh, collaboratively produce and publish uh, intelligent data products. Are you going to include the capabilities similar to what we discussed earlier, the automated statistician? Because time series, that's a, that's a common problem in industry. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, and in fact, some of Empirical's customers are already working with us on problems that center on time series. Uh, and, you know, Empirical's been working with people in both the pharmaceutical and financial centers. I think sort of here, here's maybe the key idea behind Empirical, and you can sort of see how probabilistic programming connects. So the idea is we're used to the idea of databases, which store data samples and give metadata that describes what are all the variables that those samples might have. That technology is uh, has been around for decades and is really one of the cornerstones of the IT sector, um, is it let business users ask questions about what the data is without having to be programmers. Now, what Empirical does is it adds to that this notion of a population model, which is a model of not just the variables or fields that you can observe or the records or rows or entities that you've seen in your data, but models of other variables you might be interested in knowing about, but might be inherently uncertain or entities you might see in the future, uh, but never get to observe directly. So today, that knowledge about the full population model is only in the mind of your statisticians or data scientists. Just like in the past, the schema underlying your database was only implicit in what your systems programmers knew. The database made that schema an explicit asset which your IT systems knew about. In the same way, the empirical data platform actually turns the population model into something the IT infrastructure in your organization knows about. So uh, I know you guys are just starting out, but uh, based on your uh, limited interaction with uh, users, uh, and customers and even ex and, uh, business uh, IT executives at the moment, uh, how much explaining do you have to do? How much education do you have to do in order for them to appreciate uh, a system like Empirical? It's a great question. Because, you know, I, I think people get the whole BI SQL interactive analysis, right? So, but now you're, you guys are layering it with a lot more uh, sophistication, right? Well, I think initially when we started out, uh just about a year ago now, um, as is common in any entrepreneurial effort, we didn't understand how to talk about what we were doing very clearly. Um, and so a lot of explaining was required. But at this point, um, well, I'll put it like this. So one of our advisors is this uh, is this guy, Bill Louvre, who used to be a CIO of Glaxo, which is an international uh, major pharmaceutical company. And he started out his career as a research statistician PhD in statistics, but eventually became an IT executive. And he was the one who kind of helped us understand that this problem of population modeling, forget about probabilistic programming, this problem of population modeling, giving the computers an understanding of the full conceptual population of interest that describes not just the data, but what the data implies, is a pretty widely appreciated problem. Although people don't yet talk about it by that name because they haven't had any help for doing it. It's just implicit in the mandates that different data scientists and statistics groups are given. Um, and so, you know, you sort of see projects that are really taking steps towards population modeling have different names or structures in different sectors. 
Um, but we found that um, kind of the business need for a better understanding of the implications of data and the characteristics of the parts of the world that really drive the business and a recognition that doing that credibly will be uncertain inherently and that sort of probabilistic modeling needs to be involved. That's pretty widely understood and we don't have much explaining to do about that. And so then the real question is just kind of to what extent can our products, you know, for whom is the product ready today uh, to really make a meaningful difference in changing the workflow around empirical research in line that I've, in the lines I've just described? And for whom uh, is it too early? Um, and that's something that the company is actively working on discovering right now, uh, mostly just by working customers. Interesting. Well, this has been great. So you, you uh, gave us a great overview of the state of uh, probabilistic programming. Uh, we talked about the relationship with AI and augmented intelligence, uh, your work at MIT and at, at Empirical Systems. So in closing, Vikash, so what should non-experts and people who don't follow this uh, field that closely expect in the near future? And by near future, I would say, you know, three to five years. So what what are you, you hoping to have in terms of breakthroughs as, as a researcher and entrepreneur? Perfect. So I'll, I'll first give my, my answer f for my hopes, both for empirical and for really applied data science, and then I'll say something a little more fundamental. So um, from an applied perspective, one way to look at it is this. Uh, Right now, we assume data science is expensive, costly, and in some cases, we have the maturity to recognize it can be unreliable. This is a lot like data retrieval used to be before the database. There was a brilliant article in GQ which pointed out that the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms uh, still searches microfilm when you ask them to trace a gun by its ID, because by law, they're prohibited from having a database. And it's easy to think that that's crazy. You know, that, that, of course, a human process would be hopelessly inefficient and error-prone. Yet, somehow, we still do data science like that. So, in three to five years, I think we'll start to see, um, hopefully, both greater reliability um, and trustworthiness and credibility in inference from data. Um, and if uh, some efforts, including empirical, are maximally successful, we may start to see organizations that have fundamentally new capabilities because they can rely on automation to help them interpret the data and figure out what it probably means, not just store it. And then on, on, the, on, the, on the research side. Great. So on the research side, um, I'll tell you what I'm personally ex most excited about and working for. We're used to the idea of computer programs that give very step-by-step -step detailed instructions for solving problems. Now, machine learning taught us that Maybe if we have lots of input-output examples, we don't need to give explicit instructions. But actually, there's reason to think that this goes much, much deeper, and that what's really going on in probabilistic programming is the development of new programming formalisms, which let the machine deal with incomplete descriptions of a problem to be solved, along with incomplete descriptions of how to solve it. So rather than, let's say, specify a sorting algorithm in C, you might might specify a probabilistic incomplete checker for roughly how sorted is your list and, and some hints for how to use a general inference strategy to solve that problem and leave it to the machine at runtime to figure out exactly what steps to apply to solve the sorting problem. So this idea that there may be a new type of programming um, where uh, we don't have to give such almost obsessively detailed over-complete instructions 
um, is really at the intellectual heart of what probabilistic programming is and uh, why I'm excited about it from the standpoint of the possible uh, effects it could have in our culture. Well, uh, Vikash Mansinka, this has been great. And uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. We now have over 80 free reports on many topics in data science, big data, and AI. They cover trends, tools, techniques, and applications. Go to O'Reilly.com slash data slash free for a complete list of our free reports. You can follow my guest Vikash Mansinka on Twitter at V-M-A-N-S-I-N-G-H-K-A. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.